Hey, it's time for another edition of Spitting Lugs with ESPN's Tom Luganville. I'm Lance Taylor from the next round. It is on Disrupt the Media. Like, subscribe, give us a thumbs up. It is always brought to you by MyBookie. Use that code next round to secure a first deposit bonus. That is MyBookie.ag. So uh, before we get into the conference championship games, because I'm going to jump around. I know you've got the weekend off. You're going to Vermont to ski. Good for you. Um, <laughs> this the 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 playoff committee. I look. I know it's not an easy job, but if we are truly doing it on best teams, the four best teams in college football, Alabama fans are scared to death. If Alabama beats Georgia, there is a scenario they could get left out of the college football playoff, and I am one of those. That I don't care if unless Georgia gets beat by 21 points, I think Georgia should be in. Do you believe there is a scenario Alabama wins this game and both Georgia and Alabama are on the outside looking in? Um, yes, uh, especially if uh, Florida State were to win. That that's the problem I think for both Texas and Alabama. And if Alabama were to beat Georgia, it could potentially be an issue for Georgia because the the, the if Florida State, let's just say Florida State. Um, doesn't win the ACC championship, okay? So so they're out. But now you've got Alabama who beats Georgia, as you just laid out. Texas wins the Big 12. I think what we'd end up having is a decision between uh, of Texas and Alabama with Texas holding the card, right? So I, I could see Georgia actually being the team that goes from number one to number five. If that if that happened, now that's if Florida State wins. Because if Florida State does win, they're in. Pac-12 champs in. Michigan would be in, and then Georgia. If they lose to Alabama, uh, to Alabama, Alabama will have lost to Texas. Right? Georgia would go from one to five. I think Alabama would be in in that scenario. Um, but oof, I just it's gonna, uh, it's gonna be tough, man. Yeah, watching at Lance'sLog.com, we had Florida State minus six and a half this past weekend. We were lucky to get home. They were down 12 nothing. Yeah. And I just think without Jordan Travis, it's a completely different team. So if if truly, if it's not based on deserving, if it's based on best team, I don't know how you would put Florida State in in front of an SEC champion. I totally agree with that. Um, now, are you saying – here's the problem, though. And, again, it gets down to the conversation of most deserving versus best best four teams we could be looking at not just one but two of the best four teams that would not make it i mean we could legitimately be looking at that i just think from a committee perspective if you if with their criteria and how they look at things and what they value if you left an undefeated power five champion out it would defeat the purpose of the entire thing um and i don't think florida state is one of the best four teams right now but will they have earned it? Yeah, probably so. Um, but again, look at the disaster we saw last year. You know, TCU loses to Kansas State, all right, stays in the playoff, and absolutely gets embarrassed. And we're talking about getting embarrassed by a team that under the scenario we just laid out, Georgia, could be out. Like the committee could be facing a decision to move the number one team in the country out of the top four if they, if they lose if Florida State wins. Because again, you'd have to say to yourself in that room, Georgia lost in their state, in their conference champion, conference championship. Florida State won theirs and Florida State doesn't have a loss. That's going to be, the, I don't think the committee would do it. 
Well, you know, in Florida State, let's start right there with the ACC championship game with Louisville and Florida State right now. Seminoles minus two and a half, so just a skinny favorite over yeah. Louisville coming off that loss against Kentucky. Uh, that is obviously the most obvious undefeated to go down this weekend would be Florida State. Uh, watching Louisville this past week, uh, look, I mean, they're a good team. They're not great. Yeah. They have the benefit of a schedule and the ACC being a little bit down, especially in the months of October and November. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that's a coin flip game, and Vegas tells you that right now. How do you think it plays out right now, Louisville, Florida State? I do, too. I think Vegas worries that Louisville is capable of getting into a track meet, and that's not Florida State's game. That's not. That's just not how they're going to play. They didn't play that way with, with Jordan Travis. You know, they were efficient, effective, um, very decisive and methodical on offense, um, and you had a quarterback that could really hurt you with his legs. Now, you're looking at a backup quarterback who's a very suitable backup quarterback who's played a lot of football. He's actually beaten Louisville before. But if Louisville got out early and scored like multiple times really quickly, that's what I would be worried about if I was a Florida State fan. Because I just I don't think Louisville's good enough to go toe to toe to beat Florida State. But I was also standing there on the sideline watching a Florida State team that got owned by Boston College in week three of the season. And that one didn't make any sense to me either. So who knows? What Anything can happen. And it's a conference championship game. Yeah, so Alabama fans obviously would love to see Florida State lose that game. But more importantly, they would love to see the Big 12 championship, Texas go down to Oklahoma State. Oh, yeah. Yeah, based on you know, Texas I saw a few weeks ago and the Oklahoma State team pre-UCF, uh, you know, I could see it happening, but now after the last couple of weeks, watching how bad they were against UCF, watching how bad they were in the first half against BYU, and then yeah. watching Texas play pretty much a complete game this past weekend against Texas Tech, and Vegas is also telling you they're a 15.5-point favorite for a reason. I just don't see Texas losing this game. Is there a path to victory? If I was to tell you that the Cowboys are plus two in turnovers and Ollie Gordon goes 150-plus. Yeah, then I would tell you that there's a, a, a pretty good shot there. Uh, the problem is, is I think, I think Oklahoma state is really one dimensional and their one dimension, which is really good is where Texas is elite on defense. Texas is the number one ranked rush defense in the country. They're the number one ranked third down defense in the country. Um, they're just, they're, they're too good up front. I think they're, I think they're going to manhandle Oklahoma state up front. I really believe that. And I don't think Oklahoma state is anywhere near as functional if they got to depend on Alan Bowman to win the game through the air. That's just, I, they've been so reliant on Ollie Gordon and he is a great player. Uh, I think it's going to be a good game. What you just outlined though, if that were to happen, if Texas were to win, excuse me, if uh, Oklahoma State were to win that game, that's, that's the path for, for two SEC teams to get in the playoff if Florida State loses and Alabama beats Georgia. That would prevent the drop from one to five. So you'd, you'd be sitting there with a Pac-12 champ Michigan, Alabama, and Georgia in some form or fashion if Florida State loses and Alabama beats Georgia. But you'd have to have Oklahoma State beat Texas. Okay, so, look, I'm not – Oregon is really, really good. I still think the best four teams at this point are Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, and probably Ohio State. Because I saw if we were in a 12-team playoff – Oregon and Ohio State might meet up in, in some form or fashion. I think that was yeah. one of the scenarios. And I just think Ohio State would beat Oregon. I could be completely wrong. Is there any scenario, and I'm trying to think this out, if Texas loses, Florida State loses, 
when Washington or Oregon's going to be in. So there's no way you get those four teams in. Ohio no. State really, they've got no shot unless Michigan loses. And then yeah. even they're not going to jump in front of a team that just beat them, right? Correct. And they didn't play in their conference title game. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would be a really tall order for the Scarlet and Gray. And I, you know, I, I do think I would see, I would throw Texas in that, in that discussion of being a top four team. They are, they are a playoff caliber team, even with the, the loss of Jonathan Brooks defensively, they are, I would stack them up against anybody in the country. And right? I mean, they are really, really good on that side of the ball. Um, and I, and I think that's, what's unfortunate It's we're going to have this conversation for the next week and through the weekend and through next Tuesday about top four teams versus most deserving. And while I think Florida State is deserving, I don't think they're a top four team right now. Even even if they beat Louisville and won the ACC championship, they go undefeated. They will have earned the right to go. But I think there's two or three teams out there that would beat them. Well, look, in Washington, Oregon looks like a top four team to most people. The committee tells you that, or at least they think that. Washington is in the top four because they're undefeated and they beat Oregon, but they don't look like a top four team. I mean, right now, nine and a half point favorites. That was the number that really surprised me the most because I thought in the rematch, Oregon would be like a four or five point favorite. I did not see it almost double digits. Do you see a path to victory for Washington? I think I think Oregon has to help them. Like, I, I think Oregon has to go out and maybe have a bit of a bad day or, you know, all of a sudden the quarterback gets hurt, or, you know, Bo Nix gets hurt or they turn the ball over a bunch of times. They got to do something uncharacteristic to what their nature has been since they played that first game. Because I think Vegas looks at that Oregon team and looks at Washington and doesn't like the way Washington's playing on defense. And right now, Oregon has looked virtually unstoppable offensively. Um, and I always I keep going back to that Utah game in Salt Lake City where they just did things to a Utah defense that nobody does and, and did it on the road. And so I think that offense for Oregon, is it might just be too much. And... I don't think that Dan Lanning will take some of the risks that he took, maybe not early in the game like he did the first time around. I thought he was unfairly judged a little bit. Um, I thought one of them was a little bit too much of a risk. I had, didn't have an issue with the other two. Um, but maybe he'll be a little bit, not to say conservative, but maybe not be as aggressive early in the contest. It's ESPN's Tom Luganville. It's Spitting Lugs right here on Disrupt the Media. Like, subscribe, give us a thumbs up. It is always brought to you by Lance'sLock.com. Not only can you get sides and totals for the conference championship games this week and also player props, and, of course, the NFL, uh, jump on board. Go to Lance'sLock.com for more information. So people really believe that Bo Nix can solidify winning the Heisman Trophy Friday night with a big performance over Washington. Revenge game. They end up winning that game. Um Look, Jaden Daniels, to me, has been incredible. And when you look at the numbers, through 11 games, they were better than Joe Burrows. Through 12 games, they're better than what you saw from Johnny Manziel. Unfortunately for Jaden Daniels, he doesn't get an opportunity to play this weekend, and he's on a three-loss team. Let's just say that Bo Nix goes out in a typical Bo Nix game for Oregon, 350 yards, four touchdowns. They win the game over Washington. Do you think it's a done deal, or do you think Jaden Daniels, with three losses, can still win this? I would hope it's not a done deal, um, and I would hope that more people decide to wait who have a vote. I will not be voting until next week. I don't know why voting opens up a week early or why anybody would place their vote prior to one of the leading candidates playing. Um, but I think he's got a tremendous opportunity because of the viewing window, prime time, um, to really 
kind of stake his claim. And it wouldn't be Jaden Daniels' fault. I mean, it's – well, I mean, it's their fault because they lost, right? They're not playing in the SEC championship game. But that's going to be real interesting to watch unfold because sometimes you're out of sight, out of mind. And if you're out of sight, out of mind while the other guy is ripping it, you don't even see that other name on the ballot. You know, it's there, but all you all you feel is that freshness of what you just saw. And that, that that's human nature. That helps Bo Nix. Okay, so Big Ten Championship, we'll move through this one quickly. By the way, it's Spitting Lugs with ESPN's Tom Luganville, brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag, put in that promo code next round. They're going to hook you up at checkout. There's a reason that uh, Michigan's a 23-and-a-half-point favorite. Iowa can't score points. Um, at Lance'sLog.com, we had Nebraska minus two-and-a-half. I don't know why they were throwing the football late. Take it to overtime. <laughs> Iowa's struggling on special teams. And, and this is not Brock Purdy. This is Chubba Purdy. And it was just – Awful. And and I said this, look at me, you'll love this. I was on the way to Nashville, girlfriend's Thanksgiving up there with her family. And the only thing worse than watching Iowa, Nebraska was listening on Sirius XM to the play-by-play of Iowa, Nebraska and <laughs> Iowa's play-by-play guys en route to losing that game in the fashion we lost it. But Iowa's got no shot at beating Michigan, right? Well, if it's 23 points, I would imagine the score will be 23 to nothing. I can see that. So um, I could see it too. And I think Iowa's good enough defensively to, you know, at least get some series back for the offense, get off the field. They'll make it. I think they'll make it tough on Iowa, uh, but they've owned Iowa. Um, and so we'll see. I, I just, I don't know. The job that, that Iowa has done, I'm still, I think everybody's still trying to figure it out. Like it doesn't, none of it makes sense. How, how do you get to double digit wins playing football like that? I mean, and it just goes to show you that defense does still matter. And, uh, and you need some things to go your way, and you need to bounce here and things of that nature. But, man, it is – Look at Bill, it's today's college football. In the last seven weeks, in two months, they've scored over 20 points once. I know. They won 10 games. It's impossible. Like, it's impossible. I mean, it, it, but again, I mean, I guess you, you got to respect it, but holy smoke. So, yeah, I mean, I could – listen, I could see this one being 45 to 7, 45 nothing, or I could see it being like – 13 to 10 and just being a, a knockdown, drag them out, blue collar lunch bail type of game. Okay. Before we get into Alabama, Georgia, SEC championship and our review of Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which we both saw this week, um, the fourth and 31 for Alabama. The amazing thing <laughs> to me is like crazy thing. Ha ha crazy things happen in Jordan here all the time. I think we talked about this right. on spin Lugs last week. But it wasn't the fact that Alabama won the game. It was that throw from Jalen Milrow because you played the position and somebody calculated it went 52 yards. That was a frozen rope that he threw to the back of the end zone to Isaiah Bond. How difficult is a throw like that in that situation? Well, when you consider where the ball ended up and the other places it could have ended up, he really threw it in the only spot it could have been thrown to. I yeah, because most it, people thought the trajectory was going out of the back of the end zone. Right, and and the thing is, had it had it not dropped, if, if let's just say Isaiah Bond goes up to like to do what he did, and it goes through his hands, it literally would have landed on the back corner of the white part of the end zone. Like <laughs> yeah. it dropped right in the one spot it could have. So that the accuracy of it, there's a lot of guys who have a strong enough arm to make a 50 yard throw in the air, um, but the accuracy of it and where the ball was placed, and the fact that Isaiah Bond's one of their shorter targets. It's not like they had, you know, the big 6'3", 6'4", 5'8", tight advantage. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like Nye Black or Malik Benson. I was like, you got to go to one of these these tall, lanky yeah. guys. Well, that and, I mean, you 
I was talking with, with Jim earlier in the week, Dunaway, and we were talking about, you know, the two-man rush and then the late ad as the spy over the center. I think that they got so spooked on that third and 20 or whatever it was, and and uh, Jalen Milrow gets, what, 19 before the collision? Yep. And, okay, maybe that spooks you, but, dude, he literally has to – he has to run, like, 40 yards to get a touchdown. And if you rush him or you zone rush him, let's just say, and you're facing the court, if he takes off and run, he's going to have to make at least six or seven guys miss just to have a shot at getting to the end zone. Well, and, you, and you've got another six in the end zone that are going to be coming up yes. once he passes the line of scrimmage. Yeah, I mean, that was yeah. – the defensive call was awful, and it was yeah. bewildering. And I know it's late in the game, but you got to be prepared for those situations. And that's one of those that, much like the kick six, Alabama fans have never yeah. gotten over. I don't know if Auburn fans ever get over fourth and 31. Well, they've uh, they've had a lot of breaks in that stadium in, in, in a lot of games. You remember that tipped ball over the middle against Georgia? Oh, uh, yeah, the prayer, I mean, Jordan the prayer in Jordan Air. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've had some oh, things go their way, too. Oh, tr trust me, I had Georgia in that game. And all they had to do was <laughs> knock it down. Made no sense. Yeah, I've gotten burned a lot. I did have the Auburn Tigers this past weekend, plus 13 and a half. So, uh, felt good about that at Lance'sLock.com. Okay, so SEC Championship. This game opened at Georgia, a minus four. It went up to six. It's now down to five, five and a half, depending on where you're shopping at, hopefully, mybookie.ag. Um, it doesn't remind – it reminds me a little bit of 2021. But in that game, Alabama was coming off – a win over Auburn where they couldn't block Auburn. And people yeah. were saying with this defensive front on Georgia, Bryce Young won't survive the game. There's no way they're going to be able to make it through. And the offensive line played incredibly. Brian Robinson came back, was kind of heroic in that game with an injury. And Jamison yeah. Williams was lights out. They don't have a Jamison Williams. I don't think Georgia's defense is as good. Yeah. But I think Alabama's got a shot in this game. Well, I, I, I absolutely believe Alabama's got a shot, and it's because they have an electrifying, dynamic runner at quarterback that now Georgia has to account for. Like, when you look outside of calling Joe Milton an above-average runner, who is Georgia faced that is a nightmare to deal with at quarterback with their legs? Nobody. Nobody. So, and, that, and that's, you know, I got in this discussion, and I said, why is the running quarterback such a problem? I said, because you can't, you don't have the numbers in the box to defend the box with your normal allotted numbers when the quarterback is one of the 11 players in the run game. Because if he's not in the run game, everybody's playing 11 on 10. So, you know, people talk about, oh, well, Kirby Smart and Nick Saban have had trouble against running quarterback. Yeah, along with everybody else too. And guess what? They got better players than 99% of the other teams. And they still struggle with it because it changes how you approach an offense. It changes how you play a team, meaning that if we've got the quarterbacks, we're going to have, we're going to run quarterback counter here. Okay. And we got a, a tailback and an H back. So now that's six players up front to block. Right. But guess what? There's a seventh because the quarterback is now the runner. So a team like Alabama or Georgia, that's athletic enough to play with four down linemen, two linebackers, six in the box, and defend the box routinely. Now, guess what? Do the math. They got six, you got seven. And that's how they get you. So if you're Alabama on defense, like you're looking at Georgia, and as good as they've gotten, and as much as, as Carson Beck has grown up, and he's been, I think, I think Carson Beck could work himself into Heisman conversation next year with his development this year. That's how good he's been playing. But yeah, they, always, they always know where he's going to be. 
And I was going to ask you about Carson, uh, Carson Beck because, you know, I looked today, I think Field Yates, one of your colleagues, had his top five draft-eligible quarterbacks. And I've said for the last couple of weeks, people don't realize, but Carson Beck is draft-eligible. Yeah. And just based on the upside, if I'm an organization, you know, I think he's worth a first-round look if you've got a quarterback that can play for the next two years and develop him under that quarterback. Now, I don't know whether or not Carson Beck will come out, but to me, right now, outside of Caleb Williams, uh, Jaden Daniels, Drake May, I got no right. problem taking him over those other guys. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, I, uh, number one, it's it's not a coincidence that he's playing really, really good football because he's a redshirt junior. He's not one of those kids that arrived on campus, didn't play right away, and started crying and got in the transfer portal. He worked. He battled. He developed. He had to beat out three other guys to win the job this year. So he's a little aged, a little more seasoned. The only pushback I give you on that is I think the NFL has gotten a little bit gun shy with guys that have limited starts, like Mitch Trubisky, Mark Sanchez, the guys that have been talented but haven't played a lot. Those guys have not succeeded um, in, in the National Football League, at least long term. And I think. But if I'm Carson Beck, I come back, I get a million dollar NIL deal, yeah, I get yeah. more reps, and then maybe I'm the. Best. First quarterback out next yeah. year because you know Caleb is going to be that guy this year. Yeah, Caleb, you're going to have Drake. I mean, there, there, there's going to be opportunities for Carson Beck and um, if he keeps playing well. And so, but the point we were getting at when I was talking to him was the Alabama, at least on defense, knows that he's in the same place all the time. They don't have to worry about that with him. So, um, I, if there's an advantage there, I think it's the fact that Georgia has to account for that all of the time. And what we've seen. From Alabama, at least as of late, as we've seen finally a quarterback that's not trying to fight against what his natural gifts allow him to do. I think he's tried to prove so hard that I can be a passer, I can be a thrower, and I'm going to hang in there, and I'm going to wait. And then all it's done is put the team at a detriment, right? And once he got that in his head that, wait a minute, I can just take off and I can make all kinds of spectacular plays. Next thing you know, the offensive line is playing better. He's making more throws in the passing game because people are having to come up and contend with quarterback run. You have more one-on-ones downfield. I think his realization that, wait a minute, I need to use this is like my, this is my, my superpower. And I was trying to fight it before, and now he's embracing it, and the entire team is benefiting. Hey, before we get to entertainment and Napoleon, when Brock Bowers is 100%, he's the best player on the field in almost yeah. any situation. Uh, I just don't know if he's 100%. Like, Kirby Smart probably wise to send him and Lad McConkey last week against Georgia Tech, and it was kind of a yucky game that they end up winning by eight. Never yeah. really in doubt. Kept him at arm's length the entire right. game. What do you expect health-wise from Brock Bowers, and how do you defend him if you're Alabama? Because going back to 2021, they had their hands full with 19, as most, te yeah. most teams do. Yeah, nobody's really had a plan. And like we've said all along on this, <laughs> when we've talked each week, even when he's covered, he's not covered. And I think the, the problem with him is he's used in ways that people don't use the tight end. Like he's used on jet sweeps and end rounds and reverses and vertical throws downfield. And you line him up on the outside. So it's got a bit of a where's Waldo. And I think you just, you've got you've to gotta be aware of where he's at at all times. Now, I would suspect, I don't know this, but I would suspect if they knew he was pretty banged up. Lad McConkey was pretty banged up. Let's just assume that they didn't they didn't play those guys during practice last year, last week either. So they they could be coming off of like a ten day stint of pure rest and be at one hundred percent. And they're going to need them. I think Alabama is that good on defense. 
Okay, so he did Alien, he did Blade Runner, he did Gladiator, he's done fantastic films, a lot of them, Ridley Scott. Now he's got Napoleon out. When I first saw that they were putting this together, the collaboration with him and Joaquin Phoenix, who was also in Gladiator, um, I was excited about Napoleon. And then I started to see these terrible reviews. My little man, who's a sophomore in high school, studied Napoleon last year, asked me this past weekend, we're watching the Rams game, can we go see it? So we went to a 4 o'clock showing of Napoleon yesterday. Um, I think you and I might differ on this. I went in with no expectation, and I thought it was pretty good. Oh, my goodness. We are going to differ. I can't believe you are saying that. Yeah. I, 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 I thought I, it was so boring, I practically fell asleep multiple times. Okay. Well, I, okay. So it didn't have the action. Like, I thought the battle sequences when we had them were pretty good. They were good. Yeah, they yeah. were good. They were um, good. I don't know what you got out of Walking Phoenix. The thing that I took away was how detailed the period piece was yeah. and how overly extravagant the French were, which probably yeah. shouldn't shock any of us. So yeah. I thought that that attention to detail was kind of cool. Um, I know some people said it wasn't historically accurate. I really don't remember my history lessons. Yeah. I just remember Napoleon known as a great war strategist. Um, but I thought it was better than a 62% that he got on Rotten Tomatoes. So I came home and I told my wife, I said, I rarely, if ever, agree with the critics' Rotten Tomatoes. I almost always rely on the fans in the audience' Rotten Tomatoes. And I literally looked at her, I was like, I would have given it the exact same thing the credits gave it. <laughs> I was just bored. I, it didn't have any type of climax or any type of like triumphant moment. It just kind of, kind of just, I don't know, chugged along. I didn't think he was sinister enough either. I like, like you always hear about Napoleon, how ruthless and all this and that. I didn't, I didn't feel that. Like I never, yeah, okay, and I he, thought, he, was, he was a military strategist and, and, and like brilliant and all that. But like, I thought he was going to be this like ruthless cutthroat type of character and he wasn't. Well, yeah, I, I'll give you that because, you know, early on, not to give anything away, we see a little uh, Marie Antoinette and a yeah. little guillotine action. And I'm like, okay, I got a feeling based on how much, how many revolts were going on internally yeah. that we're going to see him absolutely lay it down on a lot of guys where he actually could have. And it yeah. kind of flipped the script on where he was always the guy getting exiled. Um, yes. You know, and I, and it was a, a compact 236, which I think you thought drug a little bit, but really they could have made, I'm, I'm interested to see, and I don't know if I'll ever have time to do it, but they've got that four hour plus director's cut. Oh, they do? And, yeah, and they've released it a couple of places. And I even think in Birmingham at one theater we had it. I just don't have four hours to hey. carve out. But I would be interested to see what they let out. So how about this? I don't, you, you couldn't have been pleased with this. You know, he had to escape his exile from Elba Island or whatever it was. Yeah. In the movie, he just walks out. Walks out. And gets on a boat with a bunch of people helping him and goes back to the mainland. Like, yeah. Wait a minute. What? Yeah. It, was like, it was like he self-exiled. And well, then said, all right, I'm done with this for a while. I'm going to go back. Yeah, and there were a lot of things in my mind, like jumping beforehand, not living in the moment, like he is going to have to get off this island somehow yeah. to go back to uh, to the ex-wife. But I don't know. <laughs> all in all, I just didn't have an expectation based on all of either. the reviews. So I thought it would be better, too, because I didn't either. I was just like, man, come on. I just thought it was his movies have been so good. I thought the acting was really good. Uh, I agree with the battle scenes were really, really good. Um, I, I've never seen a horse take a cannonball to the chest. Ooh. That was rough. That was rough. Yeah, no kidding. No it kidding. really, but I mean, you know, and I think he gets misportrayed as, you know, the Napoleon complex. I don't think he was that small. I think he was like 5'10", right? 
I, I don't know. I get. I don't know. Yeah. How to, I, I got to look that up. You're right, though. Obviously, he gets, I think, portrayed that way. And I think that, because of that, I thought he would, like, just be more ruthless with a chip on his shoulder because he was so insecure about everything. But he he, he wasn't played that way. I yeah, think. it I, did show. It showed the insecurities um, a lot. And it well, showed with how. His, with his wife. With his wife. And it showed how yeah. childish he was. And I didn't realize how deep the love story between him and Josephine was. I don't know. Overall, I thought it was better than reviewed. Um, I don't think. It, and it will, though. You know how this works because of the the respect and the uh, and the credibility of Ridley Scott, it'll probably yeah. be up for one of the 10 best pictures and he'll probably nominate for best actor. I don't think it was his best work though. And it was far from Ridley Scott's best work. And I think it was far from Joaquin Phoenix, much better in Gladiator and uh, the Joker. Yes, I would totally agree. By the way, I'm three episodes in to the latest season of Fargo. I'm loving it. I am too. Okay. Yeah. Here's what I got to ask you though. All right. Last night threw me off a little bit because, um, the one drifter character, and spoiler alert, if you're if you're not watching, and I'll try to keep this between the rails, not to give too much away. Okay. It seems like it's almost taking an occult or a satanic direction with that one character. And Agreed. I just yeah, and it's almost supernatural. So I don't know where they're going with that. Yeah, I don't I don't either. Yeah, it is it is odd. Um but, but but John Hamm is fantastic. He's great. Uh, Juno Temple's great. Um, the the Joe Keery guy that was Steve in Stranger Things yep. is really good as Gator. So I, I'm excited about this season. I'm just I'm interested to see where this the cult satanic angle comes in. Me too. Yeah. But, yeah. Me too. Well, and it's fun to see John Hamm doing something different. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you. But he's got pierced nipples. I know it's weird, right? Yeah, my like, girlfriend was like. Do you think it's gotta be for the role? There's no way that. Yeah, and I was like, he doesn't ever. He would trust me. His agent would be like, your ass is taking the the Pierce nipples out. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I think it just it it shows another layer of weirdness to the character that is John Hamm in in this role in Fargo season five. Uh, Great stuff as always. Enjoy skiing. Much deserved uh, weekend off of watching college football and hanging out with the uh, family and skiing. And uh, we'll catch up with you next week, man. It'll be, right. I'm sure, more chaotic and, and more controversial when we talk next week on Spitting Luke's. Let's just hope that there's not four undefeated teams left. We 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 want to see some we want to see some tough decisions having to be made. Oh, I agree with you. Um, it's Spitting Luke's brought to you by my bookie. Use that code next round to secure a first deposit bonus. And like and subscribe right here on Disrupt the Media. Give us that thumbs up. We would appreciate it. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week on Spitting Luke's.